welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, March 31st, 2019, on the basis of Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. If you're going to try to introduce an idea that is so new, so radical, so revolutionary, so different from how people are used to thinking that you just know they're going to have a difficult time believing it, it helps to create a picture. Back in 1915, Albert Einstein was trying to change the way that the smartest people in the world had been viewing the universe for almost 200 years. You see, up until that time, people believed, because Isaac Newton, who was a pretty smart guy, had told them to believe that gravity works like this. That every object in the universe has gravity, that gravity is this force that every object exerts on every other object in the universe. And the bigger the object is, the more gravity it it exerts. So the Earth, of course, has gravity. The Sun has even more gravity. Even you and I have gravity, just not a whole lot. But then Albert Einstein came along and he said, that's not how gravity works. Gravity works like this. Gravity is not some invisible force that objects exert directly on other objects. Instead, objects actually have the ability to take the four-dimensional fabric of space-time and bend it. And the more mass they have, the more they're going to bend it. And then once that four-dimensional fabric of space-time is curved, then it's going to affect the way that other objects that are around that object move. So, So that's how gravity works. Makes perfect sense, right? Do you know what Einstein did then to help people understand this crazy newfangled idea that he was trying to propose? He created a picture. He said, imagine you take a bowling ball and you roll it over the surface of a trampoline. And then you take five billiards balls and you do the very same thing. Eventually, those billiards balls are going to end up touching that bowling ball in the middle of the trampoline, of course. But it's not because that bowling ball exerted any invisible force directly on those other billiards balls. No, it's because that bowling ball had the ability to curve the fabric of the trampoline surface, thus affecting the way that everything else around it moved. That's how gravity works. I don't know if that picture makes any of us experts in Einstein's theory of general relativity, but I don't know if you'd agree with me. For me, at least, it it sort of helped understand what he was trying to talk about. Well, believe it or not, today we're going to be talking about a concept, an idea that is even more radical and even more revolutionary than Einstein's theory of general relativity. That concept is grace. We might be tempted to think that grace is sort of the starting point, sort of the basics of Christianity. Grace is usually what we hear about first. It's hopefully what we hear about most often. And so, of course, we understand grace. We know what God's grace is all about. And yet, in these verses from Luke chapter 15 that we're looking at today, we meet some people who were really struggling to understand grace. And believe it or not, it wasn't people who were new to faith. It wasn't people who were skeptic, skeptical of religion. Instead, it was people who were very religious, who knew God very well, who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. And yet when they saw grace on display, they just couldn't comprehend it. They just couldn't understand it. And as we'll see today, the very same thing can happen to you and me. And it's not because grace is complicated or difficult to understand. Rather, it's because grace is so radical, so completely different from everything that naturally comes to us in our inner being and in our instincts. And so do you know what Jesus did 
in response to these people. He didn't try and define grace for them. He didn't try and analyze it. He didn't dissect it or define it with all kinds of technical jargon. He didn't give them a formula so that they could calculate it accurately. In fact, in these 25, 30 verses that I just read from Luke chapter 15, Jesus doesn't even use the the word grace one time. He doesn't say, here's what grace is. He tells a story to show what grace is like. He creates a picture. And as we look at these verses today, we're going to see what grace looks like for three separate groups of people. We're going to see grace for those who have lost their minds. We're going to see grace for those who have found them. And we're going to see grace for people who are angered by the concept of grace. So Jesus tells this very familiar story, a story that a lot of people know and are familiar with, a story about a father who has two sons. And the younger son comes to his father and says, I want my share of the inheritance right now. In fact, we find out later that he's fully convinced to move as far away from his father as he possibly can. It seems he is fully convinced that life would be better and he would be happier if he could get as far away as possible from his father's rules, his father's supervision, his father's advice. Clearly, this doesn't make sense. This younger son wants all of his father's stuff, but wants nothing to do with his father, never stopping to think for just one second that maybe, just maybe, the two of them are somehow connected. That maybe the very same father who had built up all of this wealth knew a thing or two about how best to use it. That maybe this father who had known this son since he was in diapers maybe knew a thing or two about what was in the best interest of that son. But of course the son doesn't think about any of that. Clearly he's lost his senses. Clearly he's lost his mind. He wants all of the father's stuff, but he wants nothing to do with the father. So what does the father do? Something completely outrageous. He says yes. He doesn't pick up the phone and call his lawyer so that he can write this younger son immediately out of his will. He doesn't set up a trust so that the son would get monthly payments as long as he agrees to meet certain stipulations. No, when the younger son asks for his inheritance, the father simply says yes. You see, this younger son's inheritance never had anything to do with the younger son's behavior in the first place. And so why would his behavior, as ridiculous as it is, somehow affect it? When the younger son wants all of the father's stuff but wants nothing to do with the father, the father does something outrageous. He says yes. This is Jesus' first picture of what grace looks like. Now, one of the other benefits of Jesus showing us what grace looks like and telling a story in this way is that it gives us the opportunity to find ourselves in the story, to try and identify with the characters. So is this where you would find yourself in this story? Do you think there are still people in our world today who are perfectly happy to receive all of the good things that come from our Father in heaven but want nothing to do with the Father himself? They're happy to receive all of God's good gifts, but they want nothing to do with God. Maybe those gifts are are work or leisure. Maybe the gifts are money and possessions. Maybe the gifts are our bodies and God's gift of sex. Maybe the gifts are our families our children, our spouses, whatever the case might be. Do you think people are still inclined to to receive those gifts, to use those gifts, but to never stop and think that maybe, just maybe, God knows a thing or two about how those gifts are best used and how we, the very people that God made, would best use them? That maybe people are tempted to think that those gifts 
can and should be pursued at any and all costs, that we have a right to chase down those good things that we want in life, no matter what it costs, no matter what we have to do, or that those good gifts exist solely for our own pleasure and our own happiness, rather than for the glory of God and for service of others, or that those gifts are the be-all and end-all of life, that they form our meaning, our significance, our purpose in life, our happiness in life. Is this where you maybe see yourself in this story? If so, what do you, what do you think the Father's going to do? Even when people are perfectly happy to receive good gifts from God, but want nothing to do with God himself, God remarkably, unbelievably, outrageously still gives them. I think we might be inclined to think that if God sort of got angry with us and really wanted to zing us, really wanted to do something mean and nasty to us, here's how that might look. There might be a job promotion that we really want, that we really go after, and we don't get it. There might be a team that we really want to make, but we get cut. We might put some of our money into an investment in the stock market or in a house, and instead of that investment going up, 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 it might actually go down. Can you imagine that? You realize, of course, that we depend on God for a whole lot more than that. God could shut out the sun as easily as you and I can shut off a light switch. God could turn off the rain as easily as you and I can turn off a faucet. God could take away our oxygen supply as easily as you and I can seal up a Ziploc bag. And yet, do you know what God does? Even for people who have lost their minds, even people who want all of God's good blessings but want nothing to do with God, even people who ignore God and ridicule God, even people who kill the people who believe in God, do you know what God does? He still takes care of them. Day after day after day. He still takes care of us. That's what grace looks like. That doesn't, of course, mean that there wasn't a problem with this younger son. And thankfully, after he had taken his inheritance and gone off to a far and distant country, the absolute best thing that could have possibly happened to him happened. Complete and total failure. He lost absolutely everything. There was a famine in the land, and suddenly he found himself feeding pigs and longing to eat the food that the pigs were being given. And so Jesus tells us that it's there and then, and because of that, that he comes to his senses. He had lost his mind, but thankfully, wallowing around with the pigs, he found it. And so he started thinking to himself, I know I've really messed up. I know I'm no longer worthy to be called my father's son, but you know what? My father's servants have it a lot better than I have it right now. And so all I need to do is prove that I'm as hardworking and capable and loyal as my father's servant, and then why wouldn't my father treat me like he treats one of his servants? Things will be much better. The plan was brilliant. It made perfect sense. He was finally thinking clearly, and so off he goes, with his lines all rehearsed, ready to go back to his father. And so what does the father do? When he sees his son coming down the driveway, he doesn't stand up and yell at him and say, get off my property and never come back. He doesn't sit there on his rocking chair on the porch and give him the old, well, 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 look who came crawling back. No, as soon as he sees his son off in the distance, he goes running for him, breaks out into a full-on sprint, tackles him in the biggest of bear hugs, and immediately starts showering this swine-smelling son of his 
with kisses. And then before the son can even get out of his mouth this elaborate plan that he's conceived to earn his way back as one of his servants, the father makes it very clear that he wants no servant. He will have a son. He wants the son to know that, and he wants everyone else to know it too. And so he orders a robe and a ring and sandals, all signs of sonship. And notice that he commands the servants to get them and put them on him. He wants them to know he's different from one of you. He's my son. Then he orders the fattened calf to be killed. There was enough meat there to have a party, not just for the people of the household, but for the whole community. And so he wants everyone else to know too. This son of mine who has returned, he is no servant. He is my son. Even though the son's plan made made perfect sense, the father does something completely outrageous. That's Jesus' second picture of what grace looks like. So is this where you see yourself in the parable? You think there are people still today who, for a time, sort of lose their senses decide that they want to live life with all of God's gifts but without God himself. And then eventually they they come to those senses and they want to make their way back to God. And they figure that in order to do so, they need to work out some sort of deal. They decide they're going to start by sort of getting rid of all of the unsavory parts of their life. No more late nights at the bars. No more one-night stands. No more dirty jokes. No more dirty websites. No more foul language. I'm going to get rid of all of that. And then they start trying to fill their life with all kinds of good things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give to charity. I'm going to be the model father and model employee. And then maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will be happy with me. It all makes perfect sense. Is this where you see yourself in the parable? If so, what do you think the father's going to do? Well, let me tell you, he will have none of it. As people try and make their way back to God, what they find is that God himself has been out searching for them all along. And before they can even get out of their mouths, their well-conceived plans to try and earn their way back into his favor, God is showering them with extravagant displays of his love. He brings them into his house. He makes them members of his family. God takes a robe, and in baptism, he puts it on us. He clothes us with the perfection of Jesus Christ. In Holy Communion, he spreads a meal before us, not just for one big grand feast, but a meal he spreads over and over and over again so that he can sit and dine with us and we can sit and dine with him. He will have no servants. He wants sons. He wants daughters. This is what grace looks like. But there's more to the story. It's easy for us to think that this heartwarming scene of reconciliation between the father and the son is the end of this very famous parable of the the prodigal son. That's what we call it after all, right? But there's more to the story. There's another son. And all the while, he's been out busy working in the fields. And when he finds out what has happened, when he hears what's going on back inside the house, he's upset. He's angry. Here, he's never disobeyed. He's never ran away from home. He's never so disgraced the family name as his pathetic excuse for a younger brother did. And he's never received so much as a thank you for it. And so he is furious. And not primarily with his younger brother. He's furious with God. I'm sorry, he's he's furious with his father. So what does the father do? Again, something completely outrageous. He doesn't just let the sun blow off his steam and wait for him to cool down. 
He doesn't send out a servant with a strongly worded letter. Get back in the house right now. No, instead he leaves the party. He leaves his friends. He leaves his son. And he goes out to this older brother, this other son of his, and he says, Son, you know that everything that I have is yours. And you know that I am always with you. In other words, he's saying, your relationship with me does not depend in any way on your behavior and your obedience just as much as it does with your younger brother. That was never what it was all about. And so you can go ahead and stay out here all you want, but out here there is nothing but anger and bitterness and resentment. But inside, there's a party going on. Inside, there's joy. Inside, there's celebration. And so why don't you leave your anger and bitterness behind and come inside and taste how good it is? This is Jesus' final picture of what grace looks like. So is this where you see yourself in the parable? This is actually kind of the point of the whole story. Jesus was telling this story to people who were acting exactly like this older brother was. It was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, people who knew all about God, knew all about religion, knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. They saw Jesus welcoming and even eating with people who had lived sinful, shameful lifestyles, and they were upset about it. And so Jesus telling them this story is really his very own way of doing exactly what the father in the story did. It's his way of reaching out to them. It's a way of trying to bring them in. It's a way of showing them, look, your life here outside of God's house is full of nothing but bitterness and anger and resentment, but inside there's a party going on. So come on in and find out how good it is. Is this where you see yourself in the parable? Call me crazy, but I think there are still people, very religious people, people who know God very well and know their Bibles very well, who sometimes act just like this older brother. Who on the one hand can sit in church and very much say, very much acknowledge that of course we are saved by God's grace alone, of course we need God's forgiveness, but the second that forgiveness is extended to the wrong person, or that status of sonship is conferred to someone that they deem inferior or unworthy. That's when the, angerness, the anger and the bitterness arises. That suddenly they find out that God's house is a place where everyone is treated in exactly the same way. Where there are no lines between the rebellious and the righteous. There are no lines between the simple and the wise. There are no lines between the rookies and the veterans. Everyone is extended the same promises. Everyone is extended the same blessings. Everyone gets to sit at the very same table. And sometimes people get angry at God's grace. Is this where you see yourself in the parable? If so, how will God respond? Well, just like he did with that older brother, he has grace even for people who get angry at grace. He will continue to reach out to us and say, look, out there, outside of God's grace, there, there's nothing but anger and bitterness and resentment. But inside of God's house, where score is not kept, where records are not tracked, where merits are not listed and tallied, where lines are erased, where God's grace is on full display, that's where the party is to be found. So come on in and taste for yourselves how good it is. You know, the great thing about this parable is that if you look at these three different examples of what grace looks like, I think that 
every single person in the world can find themselves at one spot in this story or another. In fact, I, I would also say that at any given point in our lives, all of us can find ourselves at one point in this story. Either as people who have lost their minds, who are trying to have God's good gifts without having anything to do with God himself, or as people who have found them, people who are trying to make their way back to God but assume that we need to make a deal with him in order to do it, or as people who are angered by God's grace as we see forgiveness being extended to other people. We can find ourselves at all three different points in this parable. Maybe we even bounce from one to the other by the day. And yet in each and every case, we get the very same father. Sure, he acts differently in each situation, but in each case, it's all about grace. Grace is a universal principle in God's house. It's sort of like gravity. It doesn't just work on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. It doesn't take any time off. It gets no vacation days. It's at work each and every second of our lives, each and every day. In fact, kind of the interesting thing about Einstein's theory of general relativity is that like a lot of Einstein's theories, when he first advanced it, it's actually kind of a half-baked idea. It wasn't something that he had thought all the way through. It wasn't something he had run a lot of experiments on or done a lot of observations on. In fact, that's kind of how he worked. But the remarkable thing was that as years and decades passed and as more and more experiments were run, Einstein's theory held up. This is how gravity works. And in the very same way, each of these three examples is sort of like a test of God's grace. Every time we sin, every time we rebel, every time we get angry with God for who he is and what he's done, it's another way to test God's grace. And as we see in this parable, God's grace always passes that test. In fact, the ultimate test came when God actually had to make the sacrifice that would pay for all of this outrageous behavior. When given the choice between sparing his son and saving all of us, He chose to save all of us. The ultimate display of God's grace, offering his son as payment for our sins. This is what grace looks like. And so friends, no matter how many times and how many ways we put God's grace to the test, we know that it will always pass. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.